in a world gone mad. The crazy people might just know what to do. Welcome to Mad Practice, sanity skills for crazy times. I'm JV. And I'm Cole. We're so glad you're here, wherever you think you are. Hi, Cole. Hey, JD. How are you doing? Here we are. Oh, Oh, already talking over each other. This is such a good thing to get to sit down and talk to you today. Today, hello, everybody. Like always, we're going to have an emotion of the day that we're going to talk about. And I think for how JD and I are both (laughs) swaying along to each other in our (laughs) video call, uh, it's a very appropriate emotion. We're going to talk about sadness today. Mm. But why don't we start just with a little check-in. And um, yeah, how are you doing, JD? What have you been thinking about today? Well, I'm I'm thinking many things i'm feeling many things that all fall into the pool of sadness which is not without its hues of gratitude and mostly i've been thinking about our friendship i was very grateful that we've been friends so long and i know that i can show up however i am to whatever it is that we're doing and just what a privilege that is to be in relation for a significant amount of time where trust has built and I don't have to be anything different than I am. And that that kind of space allows me to be in spaces where I'm holding other people and remember that it actually helps me be present, helps me be of use, helps me in a way that if I think I'm in a space and I can't be what I am, I get kind of, I can get kind of fucked up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I've been, I was just thinking about that. I was literally ran into this recording session after a morning of lots of interactions with lots of people and we're all complex and we're all, we got our own causes and conditions going on, but knew I was okay. Cause I was falling into this space of, I don't even know what the word is. I I, I should have looked at that list of 300 emotions that we have because there should be a word for, it's almost, it's got, I think it's got nest in it. Mm. This word I'm going to invent on the fly. It's got nest and maybe, um, I think it's going to be feathery nest ship. So it's like a friendship that's a nest made of flowers that you know, or feathers maybe, and flowers that you're going to be okay in. You're just going back to the nest. You f- you will fly again, but for now you're going to, I'm going to say a friendship that holds you between flights. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cozy. That's my emotional word of the day. So thank you for welcoming me to you, whether you knew it or not, to our friend Friendship. Friendship. Well, thank you for, for welcoming me in. And thank you for building this nest together. That, that's a that's a wonderful response to the question of what are you thinking about. So in in our you know actual day and time where we're recording over the last you know thirty hours or so, you and I have been pretty you know waist deep into a, a a super complex situation with complex people and some really sharp edges, and that's largely what I've been thinking about. What I was thinking about talking about and and you did the same was just talking about how through this what a a significant yeah nest safety net care web 
safe port in the harbor, you know, that that having you as a friend and, you know, partner in in navigating this super complex situation, how important that's been, how a nest is such a good way to imagine it, because it is so much of of us huddling, connecting, <laughs> sometimes, you know, sharing advice, comparing notes, filling each other in, supporting each other, and then both jumping out and, and going off into our own, you know, sections and, and doing doing the work on the ground and learning more, doing more, and then coming back, have another huddle, um, come back to the nest, and then go back out. And how without that, how, how just how much harder it would have been to, to navigate mm. the last couple of days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wonder like if, if it's helpful just to think through some specifics that some, some ways that that actually shows up, you know, in the way that we talk to each other or, um, support each other. That's helpful. Yeah. I think, did I interrupt no. you there? Do you want no, to please. keep going? And Okay. I think one of the things that I've been thoughtful about is this, because we're in a lot of organizing spaces and activist spaces, and it's this idea that I know that you know I might be sad, and that sad is not all I am. And so this ability to not, I think the the friendship is 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 about co-regulation, right? To give it a that fancy term. And I think that I know that I'm free to talk about my emotional life as we talk about helping others, as we talk about uh, not knowing solution, not knowing what to do. To me, it's, you know, that, um, I don't know if I ever told you that story about being in a psych ward one time and they, and they have a library in the psych ward, a very bad library, like only books, romance novels, a lot of romance novels. And then there was a, a book by Jean Ralston Saul called Voltaire's Bastards, which is all about the history of the tyranny of reason. And I, I think you were at the event where I got to meet him and I got to tell him that story that, yeah. that it really helped me because that book is all about what we lost when the Age of Enlightenment decided to elevate skills of logic and reason which are not without their place, but what we lost in all of that is, is the complexity that we have as human beings. Like the, the very real idea that when they say of us as artists, you know, that we're not in this world or we're off with the fairies or we're, or we feel too deeply, we're too sensitive. And this book was kind of like this very intellectual argument for what we've lost and that those kinds of, humanity were just as important. So I think that when I say we we're in that nest together, that I don't have to separate that out. I don't have to worry about, uh oh, I'm getting I'm presenting my argument for what I think is happening, but I'm also teary, doesn't take away from what I'm saying with you and in other nest places. And I think that because we're not afraid of emotion in each other, because we've really not had to separate it out from our intellect, that that's one of the things that we do well. And I think it is because we're artists and super sensitive. And I, I move in many spaces where I see that people can't talk about their feelings or can't, like, it's just a lack of skill. It's not, it's just that we've been so 
you, you need to be rational. You need to be a certain way when you come into these spaces that people uh, often leak mm -hmm. their sadness or their anger or their, because they can't front it. They can't say like you and I can't, Hey, I, we have to talk about this thing because it's happening right now, but I'm also super sad and teary and a little bit pissed. And you go, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and you can say whatever you are. So I think there's that, that very real thing, especially with sadness that we're talking about today, that you're never just one thing. But some people, if you say, I'm sad, I'm sad today, don't want to talk any further, as if that's going to mean you don't have access to your intellect or you don't have access to your, if you're, if you're coming from your heart and your heart is sad, as if that means <laughs> you can't access your, your rationale or your logic. I think it's colored by sadness, but I think that's what I mean when I feel I'm in the nest with you and everything belongs and, and I might need to rest a little bit before I figure out how we can help each other navigate this situation. Yeah. Have you ever wondered how that book ended up in that psych ward? Always. What a magician, whoever snuck that book on that shelf. The origin story of how that book showed up is so interesting to me. And I can see it, Cole, like it really was like kind of bad books, like either self-help books, you know, or romance novels. And it's thick. It's this big, thick book. And I'd never read anything by him before. And I don't know if I would have, quite honestly, I've read a lot of him since. But, and I, I picked it up and I got a pencil and I still have it. It's really notated. And I was, you know, not, not in my, strongest place of reality. You can really see my notes are talking to the book. But I really do believe that it helped me understand that I was not able to access logic and rationale in that moment, in those moments that I was there. But I was going to be okay. And that there was a place for all this that is called madness. Yeah. There was a place and I was going to be okay. Yeah. Amazing, right? I don't know who carried in. There were no notes, no highlights. It didn't look red. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can tell sort of if a book's been, you know, at least flipped through yeah. once. So, so maybe some person's sick person's idea of a gift or maybe a well person's idea of a gift. But either way, I'm, I'll never forget that book. You know, it. I. it reminds me of there's this. I think it initially came from a legal scholar in the States. It's called the the universal vulnerable subject. And it's this counterpoint to this like classic economic theory of the universal rational subject where I'm, I'm sure I'm going to butcher this explanation, but where, you know, economic theory is based on the assumption that the human actor in any economic system is going to act a hundred percent rationally and logically. And that, you take that as the universal condition of humans is rationality. And then you build these economics models and then which translates into real world systems based on that key assumption of clear headed logical rationalism as the universal condition. And so this legal scholar in the States named Martha Feynman poses this alternate to that 
called the vulnerable subject, where the actual universal human condition is that everybody is vulnerable. And the way I think it initially is used in their advocacy and research and scholarship is that is that then there's a clear onus on the state, like on government to to be responsive to the universal vulnerability of its citizens of of, of humanity. But as a, a broader idea, as as just a, a clear counterpoint to the universal assumption that everyone, true human, every every well operating <laughs> human machine is totally rational, is just you know clearly so incomplete, clearly so wrong as an yeah. idea. But but d- when it gets down to it, that everybody is vulnerable, just as humans with our bodies and our brains, yeah, young and old, like everybody is just inherently vulnerable. And then I think over the last year or so since the pandemic hit, that's become even more obvious and more literally true, more evident. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's always been true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this separation from how it happened that the emotions became largely feminine and that feminine was attached to weak and that was pathologized by <laughs> psychologists. You know, you and I have talked a lot about speculative fiction coal and and the idea i often fantasize about if another psychologist so apparently and you know like we said we're gonna do this podcast as general general talkers and then link our whatever we say whether it can be proved or not proved but i i think around the same time as freud who as we know had a lot to do with oh solidifying the idea of feminine emotions as hysteria. Uh, (laughs) And at the same time, there was this other guy that was kind of linking, hmm, you know, like women's sort of this thing that's happening of not being very emotional, being vulnerable, being, you know, um, carrying large sensitivities, um, feeling not able to communicate. He was linking these ideas of a changed brain to sexual assault and incest at the at the same time as Freud. And, you know, what we know now about trauma changing the brain and that the brain is pretty plastic and we can change it around and stuff. He was like, I often think, what if what if the academy had gotten behind him? Yeah. Instead of sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> you know, like 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 what where would we be now in this idea of universal subject where would we be in being able to meet in spaces with our entire selves and not so caught in these pathologies of emotion that psychiatry has you know aided and abetted i i i'm not anti psychiatry in any way but i do think the the fear of what our true emotional lives are and can be is very wrapped up in this idea, Cole, of universal vulnerable subject, that we're not just rational beings. And it doesn't mean something's wrong with us when we're not totally in the rational and totally in the logical. It means that we have these, like if we thought of it positively, we have these amazing capacities for other things, like walking through the world, holding sadness, so much sadness today for the the very real thing we're dealing with together in in community and knowing that that is one situation of many hundreds of thousands 
in the world that really have to do with miscommunication, being not included, feeling unheard, like very universal things that don't fit well into our idea of this is right and this is wrong. And, you know, it's beyond that. And so we're so in this time of in it, what has been said is like a we're inside a, a racial a crisis inside a mental health crisis inside a pandemic. Like that's really what we're in right now. And you can see that by only believing that rationale and, and, and logic are our defaults and ignoring the very real humanness of us, you can see how the systems built on rationale and logic are falling because they can't handle all this nuance and all this complexity and all this like, I don't know the last board meeting I've been at or <laughs> inside an institution where it's like, let's talk about the sadness in the community. Yeah. Mostly it's about how do we not get in trouble for these things we may not have been paying attention to that we have to pay attention to now. Yeah. And I think the way that I am super interested in the vulnerable subject kind of as a counterpoint to the rational subject coming from this history of economic theory because still I think so I think you're totally right how sadness as an emotion is deemed feminine as is vulnerability and I feel like growing up and in my like 20s you know like uh, as as I was you know entering into the workforce I guess or whatever is that sadness also the message is it's also like unproductive mm. and, and and it can be indulgent you know and 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 how it is total like you were saying like you can't be sad and be a good worker at the same time and so if you have to be sad mm -hmm. okay and why don't you why don't you go figure that out as quick as you can so you can get back to work and work both like <laughs> or just to be a productive person mm -hmm. and the sense of sadness as an unproductive emotion is something i still carry with me and i you know what i i, what I was doing today what i've started doing with these podcasts is just out of curiosity like just googling emotions mm -hmm. uh you know we've been we've been looking at the dictionary definitions oh i should we we could say what the i found the dictionary definitions of sadness mm -hmm. or sad and the dictionary definition was uh, uh to be affected by unhappiness or grief sorrowful or mournful and then the definition from this medium article that we love is sadness is an emotional pain associated with or characterized by feelings of disadvantage loss despair, grief, helplessness, disappointment, <laughs> and sorrow. I love in that long list, grief, helplessness, disappointment. I love that it says and sorrow, not or, or and or. It's like, no, all mm. of it. <laughs> you, can, mm. like, you, you don't get to pick and choose from this list. It's all of it. <laughs> but as I was Googling sadness, and maybe this just speaks to my own Google algorithms, uh, it's just occurring to me, but there's so much about um, how to be productive through sadness. Like there's, uh -huh. there's such a open door into this world of of wellness and self optimization. Like how to how to and, and how yeah those industries of health, wellness, mental health optimization are still so geared towards being as hyper productive as possible mm -hmm. and and how language of you know emotional literacy emotional intelligence emotional connectedness 
awareness, a lot of psychotherapy language has been used and incorporated into into like what often comes down to like career coaching (laughs) it feels like or like self self self-help self-improvement um Mm -hmm. very much geared towards being as big and fully into the work world as possible yeah i i feel compelled to talk a little bit here cole about this subtle shift when you know how i feel about mental illness i i just think like it's such a misnomer you know, because our heads are connected to our necks are connected to our bodies. And I think to talk about it just in terms of symptoms of how the brain is functioning, you know, so irrational thinking or disordered thinking or all the symptoms that can be gathered just around thinking are are part of it, certainly. But I wanted to talk about that subtle shift from even talking about it, about mental illness and how we talk about it as mental health. And so it's, it, it's something that Uh, I think the intent was like to take away the stigma of something being wrong with you. But the, but the problem is that mental health is like this disappearance of what, what is, what is it that we're actually talking about and the total onus on the individual to maintain mental health so that you can be productive. And if you're not in mental health, you know, the mental health systems all exist because and continue to grow yeah. because there's no exit out of them, <laughs> you know? So either you are personally responsible for your mental health and anything outside of that, the systems that you're trying to move through the, the, you know, all the way from capitalism to down, never have to be accountable in any way. It's just, you know, the um, body default and I'll have to look up that um, the author of that book the body is not an apology talks about body default. And I think a lot about mind default. You know, we've talked so much about, of course, being vigilant, trying to keep ourselves as healthy mentally as possible, but how that sets us up for failure, because even if we're doing everything right, right, right. Feeding ourselves, sleeping, avoiding too much stress, (laughs) we can still be triggered. We can still have our find ourselves in mental illness language in an episode and so putting the shame of what have i done wrong on top of dealing with what's happening to us it's so clear to me that it you know if we if we keep it on our emotion of the day it's not about it becomes about my sadness or your sadness and it's a personal responsibility it's not the sadness mm-hmm which, you know, even that shift, you know, even that shift to the sadness, what is our responsibility as humans together on this earth to the sadness that is experienced by so many individuals in one way or another? And I think if we don't tend it, 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 I think if we can't recognize it as a sadness, it does grow to depression. And depression is, as you and I know, a very real thing. (laughs) So, you know, what is the the mental health industry only responds to the crisis point of sadness. I, I think the crisis point of sadness and sorrow and despair and distress is the very real manifestation of depression. And, you know, that our response to it is if you, if the, if the self help, and that's the other thing, what a bizarre thing. I have only been able to move through this world and become a productive yeah. citizen again and productive. I made the little bunny ears mark 
just for the radio listeners, been able to be responsible to myself because I'm in community with others. Yeah, because I think that's the other side of the coin with if mental health, mental illness or whatever is solely your responsibility, like take care of your own mental health. Yeah. The to me the yeah like the logical other side of that coin then is that you're also not responsible for anyone else's like you're responsible for yourself and only for your own mental health and then if you can get yourself feeling good well then great job done like you did it for now great work yeah but I think this you know looking at a a much more kind of the ecology <laughs> the mental health ecology you know everything that's affecting us also if if you accept that. And which often, you know, includes all those beautiful, beautiful aspects of like accepting help and friendship and mutual aid and, and all that stuff, then you also get to accept that you, you are part of that you are part of, if all these systems are a part of your mental health makeup ecology, well, you're part of those systems, which means you're also part of everyone else's mental health. And so your personal responsibility extends to everybody mm-hmm. as, as theirs does to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we have to, I, I think I accept our need of the system, but also that the system is really not serving mental health needs, <laughs> you know, like in, in very small ways, like for example, if one program is meant uh, medication compliant and a person is able to cycle in and out of medications, which many of us are, you know, that there's a time and a place for medication, but it doesn't have to be, you know, a lifelong interaction that stays the same. There's, there's not, the system can't hold that. It's either you are this, you are compliant, or you are not. And so many of us have DIY solutions that we share with each other that can't feed back up into the system. And so many DIY community solutions around peer support and what that really is. And I don't think it's it's for lack of a good intention inside those systems. I, I don't ever think that they're not trying to help everyone in them. But the the truth is it's it's such a disconnect between the lived experience and and the fact that you arrive in that system almost always in crisis at the worst possible point. And then learning to you know, figure out your own life is it, always done in community. And if people don't find that community, that reliance on the system and how far it can actually take you is often tragic, you know, because it can't support this idea that you can be empowered, you know, once you're through a crisis to begin to think about things that you need or want. But if you, for example, have a job that you can't return to unless you're able to return to it in this eight hours these eight hours are the work hours and these are the things you need to do. If there's no flexibility there, it stops. So sadness is a, a symptom of life in our time. Like there, there's no one in this COVID that has not, well, maybe there is because I'm always surprised, but I think that everyone has had to be in relationship to their sadness around loss even if they're small losses, even if you're quite privileged in in how, you know, you can see how COVID has affected marginalized communities way differently. But even, even at the highest level of privilege, you've probably lost something. And 
that we can't even talk about the sadness. You just hear anger. It goes to me, it goes right to anger. And you can see in the world, like, I won't wear a mask. It's like, I'm kind of sad that I don't really know <laughs> yeah. what's coming up. It's like, no, I'm not wearing a mask. And now I can meet with 10 people. It's not really about the sadness of like, we're still in it. And let's talk about everybody being sad. No, it's like, we're pushing the rules. They talk about it as a mental health balance. But I, I think that's just crap. It's like, no, it's a capitalist balance. If it's a mental health balance, let's create spaces where people can talk about it. Create spaces where somebody who hasn't talked about feeling sad their entire lifetime feels like they can. Like, who isn't sad right now? Yeah. Now, I could probably, you know, make a couple phone calls right now and talk to a few people, some of them in my family, who would say, I'm not sad. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'll, like, I, well, I guess it depends who, who if, if you called me, I would say I was sad. If some people in my life called me, I, I, I wouldn't. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm getting more open to that. But my my big history with sadness is pretty paired with anger. Yeah. Where those two key emotions, sadness and anger, were ones that I, in general, did not express and just got decades of practice of ignoring or not recognizing, not acknowledging, and 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 not expressing for sure. Um, and just like stuffing down a bit. You know, when we were talking about anger, I think with anger, I was both deeply uncomfortable feeling or expressing anger and uncomfortable witnessing it in any way or or experiencing someone else's anger. I don't know why for sadness it's different. I'm I'm very comfortable being with sad people. I'm deeply unpracticed at showing sadness to people. I'm I'm very happy to sit sit in sadness with other people, but but not yeah, but not not express it really. Yeah, that's that's a really really good point is that often it is not safe at all to say that I'm sad. And and you know, if if we did have the universal vulnerable subject, if our reset was vulnerable, if that was our universal standard, that would be way easier, of course, to say you know, I'm sad or I'm feeling sad and, and it will, it is a conversation ender. If someone says, how are you? And the universal rational default is I'm fine. I'm often the person who says I'm not fine. I'm here. I'm sad. I have a lot of um, noise in my head today, but I'm here. That, that often is the end of that particular exchange, <laughs> yeah. but I still kind of double dare myself to introduce it in spaces just because there might be someone else who needs to express in that way so sometimes it's like almost like speaking an emotional language like french or a, like a, like a land acknowledgement except it's like an emotional acknowledgement you know because i think that i'm never without sadness that's just my my default i've learned that i can experience many other things with it uh, if, if my goal, if my mental health goal was to rid, be clear of sorrow or sadness, I wouldn't be here anymore because I'm not able, I'm not able to do that. And so I've had to develop a relationship with sadness and loss that is less about uh, making it go away and more about 
tending to it. I think I was telling you about one of my meditation teachers, well, a couple of them, Mary Stankovich and Aaron Selzover. I may be pronouncing that wrong, but just to acknowledge them as teachers who are really trying me, challenging me to bring tenderness to all of myself, because I do sometimes get angry about not being able to get rid of this sorrow completely. And I, and I try to, um, anger will actually be a place I go to not like I can pick up anger in the way I used to pick up alcohol and drugs. Mm -hmm. I can pick up anger, like a good rage. Will I get drunk on rage and sorrows gone for however long that rage lasts. I was thinking today about, I'm, I'm going through a bunch of files and I'll go into my field notes now about you know reflecting on on sadness and how my relationship to it has changed so i'm going through my taxes and getting them all ready and as is my way there is little (laughs) pieces of paper that are not to do with my taxes (laughs) that have ended up in there somehow so there's i don't know how but there's a my partner's will handwritten will was in this year's tax file probably because i was thinking this is an important piece of paper (laughs) I should put it in my important pieces of paper file and reading it over handwritten from a couple of years ago and remembering why I asked, why I asked her to write it um, because we're not legally married. And I was so scared that something would happen and I wouldn't be able to represent her wishes. Yeah. And, and so reading it and feeling both that sadness of oh, a will, if something happened, to this person I love and also, you know, that we've been through some difficulties of late and are staying in them, staying with each other, trying to figure that out. And then her very real personality in this will, like really she'd like to just be rolled into a pit in the forest to decompose, but I'm not willing to go to prison for her (laughs) because I, I don't think I could explain the disappearance of the body as an act of love. (laughs) So at the same time, I'm laughing at knowing that if possible to be buried under a fir tree, a Douglas fir specifically, or a big leaf maple and what joy that brings uh, knowing that those are places. I, I know the exact trees actually that I would choose, but then walking with death and knowing that that is, that is a truer human experience to be feeling those things at the same time. Then this idea of the way psychology and psychiatry often asks us to sort and compartmentalize, you know, how are you feeling on a scale from one to 10? How would I possibly rate that? What experience of reading that handwritten will on a scale of one to 10, which is very logical and rational. Yeah. But I can now not be afraid of how my emotions are both sinking and getting uh, filled with light at the very same time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This is the real treat of field notes is to remind ourselves of what we were doing and thinking and feeling before and, and how that affects us today as we reconnect with them and re-remember them. Okay. Well, I'll share my field notes. Great. Because I've been thinking over the last month or so, so much about sadness and 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 specifically about crying as as an expression of sadness that i'm pretty disconnected from 
so I feel like I have not really cried in many, many years. Like anything beyond like a little glassy eyed, getting a little glassy eyed. Like it's just not a, a practice of mine. It's not something I feel super capable of doing actually. But this came out in through some therapy over the last little while where I had I had like an, another, I'll call it a panic attack for lack of a, a more effective way to describe what happened, but it's largely a physical experience where I'm shaking and hyperventilating um, and crying hard, like, mm-hmm. like tears, like as in like tears and snot is just streaming as my body is going through, you know, two minutes or so of this big event. And, and so I was talking to my therapist or my psychologist or whatever, uh, shortly after, and where I was just telling him about that and, you know, we were kind of going through it again, but I was saying that I was like, you know, a part of me feels pretty, cause he's like, oh, how are you feeling now? I was like, well, not bad in part because there's this great catharsis that I get through those big physical events. Mm-hmm. Like it's this big release. And so a, a theory that we're playing around with, and, and so we were talking about, you know, like what happens when we're pushing emotions in or keeping them in, bottling up, repressing, like all that stuff. And and what other healthy releases do I have? Like, what, or could I have, you know, if this reservoir keeps getting keeps filling up, filling up, filling up, eventually it's going to burst. And so a way to avoid, you know, these big physical events, uh, which I mostly am terrified of, but like a sliver of me enjoys because they're, there's like, they're cathartic in, in after afterwards. And so we were just talking about like, well, he was like, well, like, you know, what about just having like a, a good old cry, you know, just a good, like just a good hard cry. And I was like, oh, I haven't cried in years. I was like, I remember like, I like, for lack of a better term, like objectively tragic things, you know, like going on not quite a decade ago, but like a good number of years ago, you know, a, a, a best friend committing suicide, like things like that. Like I cry then, but on a month to month basis, even as awful things are happening, you know, as saddening or troubling or frustrating things are happening. I'm not crying. So what this led us to is for the last month or so, I've been trying to find mostly like artistic experiences or narrative experiences that can make me cry. And so I have, I've been making playlists, like just the saddest songs available, (laughs) songs that are both like objectively very sad. (laughs) It's like this Bonnie Raitt, I Can't Make You Love Me <gasps> song is just so good. It's so sad. And then also songs that have more, that are more uh, personal, like more connected to moments or memories or things like that, or people that I have sad memories with. So I have that playlist going. I've been trying to watch sad movies, poetry, short stories. And it's really, it's really good. The practice is really great because it's not the like keener student in me is still like I have a homework assignment and I need to complete it. And to me, that's like having a good hard cry. Um, but the, the bigger work is actually just like feeling sad, noticing it, finding, you know, I've talked about like where emotions sit in my body and like sadness is elusive. Like, you know, like think of where sadness sits in me and then keep, keep on that, keep mindful of that for a while 
let when sad memories are coming, go with them, find like go on a, a, a little associative memory trip and follow those ideas, not turn away from them right away. And, and I haven't cried yet. I haven't act, like there's been a couple moments where I go like I feel <laughs> my eyes get wet. Oh. But like Oh. haven't produced even a tear. I haven't got mm-hmm. to a single tear yet. Mm-hmm. I'm also, I also don't sleep very well. And so one night I was doing this pretty late at night and I was lying on my couch as everyone else in my house is sleeping. And I had a big yawn and that made my eyes water a little bit. I was like, oh, that doesn't count. <laughs> that doesn't count. Wow. That's so great. This practice, it's great. Like I, I really do think it's crying practice for so many of us. And I think that that Bonnie Riot, this is where I am. You just mentioned that song. Who knows when I heard it last? And it was like the chest got tight. The little lump started coming up my throat. Mm. I was hearing, you can't make me love you. You know, and it's like, wow, that is, first of all, still in there. Yeah. Second of all, <gasps> I, I, I went to the album that I think I bought that I think I listened to, that I think I cried to, and that I'm watching our stories, you know, because I think I've shared with you, I have a daily crying practice. Like I, I cry every day now as a way to treat rage. So it's like my prescription for rage is in the same way, not, um, so this is what I think. I think we pee, we poo, we cry. And I think that crying is exactly like peeing or pooing and peeing or pooing get uh, like in beginning in self-care 101, they go watch how long you prevent yourself. Like if you feel the urge to pee or poo, watch how long you put it off and if it has any consequences. So it's like, wow, I, that's true. If I don't answer those calls, there is some sort of consequence Luckily, nothing all that graphic or horrible, but increasing discomfort, you know, increasing pressure, um, just this idea of um, not being present in my body. Like, so, you know, now if I have to pee, I pee. I have to poo, I poo. With crying, it's become the same. So if I feel it coming, I don't, I just think of it as a bodily function that's here to help me. And I will excuse myself from a meeting. I will uh, take a bath. I have lots of crying baths, sometimes with water in the tub, sometimes without. I just let it come. Sometimes I sit like in meditation, just like, okay, I'm going to cry now. So that I stay with the feel, learn to stay with the feeling of sadness. Yeah. And I probably cry, well, on some days I probably cry six or eight times a day but it's pretty short. Yeah. Yeah. And it's way better because I used to have that same practice that I would, I don't like the term panic attack either, but for the sake of our discussion, panic attack, rage, cry, rage, panic attack, cry, big, exactly as you described, snotty, forcing it out. Very like a wrestler crying. Yeah. And the tenderness, I have a spot in my apartment where I, I don't know why, but I slide down against the fridge, I think because it feels like no one can see me. <laughs> no one's here but me, but feels like no one can see me. And it's almost become like a, 
litter box now. <laughs> <laughs> like I can slide down the fridge and it's like, okay, okay, we're having our cry break. Okay, okay. And I don't know what it is, but I have found that that helps me um, get to the humanity under my anger faster. And I am really thinking about um, how toddlers show emotion too. You know, like they're sad, really sad. I think your daughter's five now, right? When they're sad, they're sad. Then they're done. Yeah. Then it's the next thing. When they're angry, same thing. It doesn't last that long, but they seem to know, have that wisdom that it's the expression of it that has to happen. And because they they still have that freedom, it doesn't last long. Yeah. Oh, man. The number of times that I've seen my kid, yeah, like just ball over something, cry hard for like 30 seconds <gasps> and then be like, Phew, all right. And then just like go back to doing whatever she was doing or rage at something for less than a minute. Yeah. Um, and that, and you know, uh, so much of what we're talking about and how I think about things now is coming from parenting, my wife and I parenting a, a five-year-old and, and over the last year or so, and how much I realized the like number one job of a parent right now is in nurturing their emotional growth mm-hmm. and emotional development, like more so than any other physical or learning to read, learning to ride a bike. Like we're doing all those things too, but but how the primary job, especially while in those early stages of the pandemic, when we were, the three of us were in our apartment, never leaving, homeschooling, working, figuring it out, going through her emotional development with her and being supportive and nurturing has has just given me so many different frames of references or just like little mini, little baby revelations yeah. all the time yeah, um, about about just how human emotions work as she's discovering them or as she's expressing them newly. Yeah. And this is where I think, you know, we see the universal rational subject default because somehow we know these things are important. I mean, kindergarten and, and preschool, we, they have charts, they have little timeout corners, like every office should have, every family should have a timeout corner and the idea that you need to regulate, you need to go to that corner. You know, I've seen kids in preschools point to this big chart of faces. What are you feeling? They point to a face. What do you need is the next question. There's books, there's snacks, there's soft pillows, there's headphones. This is crazy that we drop that for elementary school, any any school beyond, unless you're you act out. So here's where the punitive system comes in. You act out, time out. Instead of these little kids are so well-versed, they're like pointing. I've seen them. It's And I'm yeah. just like, I weep because I'm like, we need these everywhere so that, you know, we're in a meeting. I, something's, are you okay? I don't know. I don't know. Do, do you need some time? Maybe I do. I go to this corner. I point, I identify the emotion. And that I identify what I need. And there's room for that. In in my daughter's kindergarten class, they have color zones. Yeah. Um, and and I love them because they're mixed. The, like it's, a, you know, red zone isn't just being angry. Yeah. Red zone includes being angry, being confused, being hungry, 
green zone is being happy and calm and essentially saying present, but being like ready to totally be with others. Blue zone is is being sad, but it's also being tired. You know, yellow zone is is the like frantic, excited, good, nervous, uh, you know, like, and it's such a beautiful shorthand for all these awesome little five-year-olds. Yeah. And also to understand each other's emotions. Yes. You know, for one kid to be like, oh, he's pretty red zone now. And and they have a, they have a shared, simple, but effective language to not just say how I'm feeling, but to start to recognize how your peers and friends are feeling and what they may need, which sometimes includes space, which sometimes includes being included in a in a game or help from you know a, a teacher or someone else. Yeah. And this is that whole idea, Cole, like because of the mental health emphasis and the self-help emphasis. So even if we get really skilled at self-regulating, which is great and something I have to devote a lot of time to, I need to be able to move into spaces where I feel co-regulation is possible. And everybody needs that. So that if someone yells in a meeting or someone loses it and starts to cry, it doesn't stop, you know, as in we can't get back to it, but we do know how to help that person take care of themselves. We don't all look away. Whoever it is doesn't never bring it up again, isn't shamed because they had that very human moment in the middle of all our rational talking. And th- and that's to me like the, the the mental health idea is that we don't we don't know we're scared of someone who gets angry or sad or we feel like we're going to have to be responsible. You see little kids do that all the time. Just check in with somebody. Like this fear of if I take that on, I can't take that on because I got all this stuff to do, you know. And I think kids are are the proof that we are capable. We have all these capacities and none of them are negative. We have a huge capacity for emotional life, which is what connects us to others. Huge capacity for intelligence. You know, the way Maggie learns right now is so, you know, so fast. Like, you know, the the way kids just grab onto something. I love that. But it, but then you can see where it drops off and that uh, those other capacities, those other kinds of yeah, capacities. I don't even like thinking of them as intelligences. They're just capacities we have as human beings that if we can't express them, harm ourselves and then we harm others. And I think this, when we were talking about this take care section, Cole, which is something we do to self-regulate or co-regulate, I, I am very aware that most of my crying is done alone. And that if I feel it happening in public, I'm usually going to go and take a smoke break, which is really a crying break because I don't smoke. And I'm fascinated by that, that I most of the time will be like, that's too much for a space or a person. So I'm thinking, thinking a lot about that, about the self-regulate, co-regulate. And I do, you know, as I, as you know, from, I have a regulation practice of these, of three cards that I carry, um, a green card, a red card, and a yellow card. And uh, how I use those in the certified show that I tour about turning the audience into a mental health review board is they hold up a red card if they think I'm insane, yellow if they think I should proceed with caution, they can't be sure, and green. But for me, I carry them, you know, like uh, green is when I'm, I'm feeling like I'm taking the time and the space, I'm connected to myself, 
I'm thinking through my thoughts and my actions. And so I, I feel not reactive. I'm like, mm, I can, in the green zone, I can be like, no, I'm not going to take that action right now. Or I'm not mm-hmm. going to say that right now. Yellow is when I start to feel uh, my reactivity coming up, my wanting things to be a certain way to come up. And that means I got to pause. I just got to pause, relax. I got to step back. Red. Sometimes in the yellow zone, I can be like, I'm making a mistake right now. I'm going to start again. Please forgive me. The green zone is like, I, I don't do it in the first place. The red zone is when I'm behaving in a way I don't want to behave in. Mm-hmm. And usually that means I'm, I'm angry or I'm blaming or I'm, and I got to just get out of that situation. <laughs> like the house is on fire. And I do really sometimes in difficult conversations, set these cards out in front of me. Yeah. Because I can't always, uh, although I'm learning how to track in my body what I'm feeling first before I hit a thought, I can't always feel it. So I can, if I'm looking at these cards, maybe my hands are feeling funny. Maybe I notice that, maybe I don't, but I can be looking at these things and they help me, especially in difficult conversations. If my hand is on the red, you know, I, there is one action for me and that is stop. So yeah, I, I literally still use these. I was very, um, I used to hide them. So I use these with my partner. I use these in meetings at work. Yeah. Zoom allows me to keep them out of, uh, no one knows. No one knows I have them. Totally. I have used them in certain community spaces just by setting them on the table. Sometimes people ask me, sometimes they don't, but they really help. They're just a tactile little thing. I haven't used them during our podcasts. (laughs) I think when I feel like I can be green, yellow, red, and all hues in between, I don't need them. But if I, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's my little take care, self-regulation, co-regulation in space with others thing that I use. That's so great. And, and thanks so much for going into the detail of like laying them out, you know, before something that may or may not take you through a few colors. Cause my, when you were first describing, I was wondering, I was like, how do you know when to check? Cause I, I was. I guess also imagining how I would use them and I could see myself by the time I go to, to check the cards were already barreling past yellow. Um, and so, yeah, thank you for that detail of, of having them like proactively or just like, you know, you kind of set the table before a meal, like you set your table before a meeting, or I think often, you know, we know if, if, if a conversation or a bit of work or a, a circle or what, you know, whatever's happening, has the potential for, for taking us through that, that wheel. Yeah. They can be used that way, Cole. Like if I kind of suspect it'll be difficult or or it'll go through these different levels, but I also use them when I'm like disturbed and I use that not in the negative sense, but when I feel disruption, you know, and I, maybe I'm not sleeping right. I, I, my mind's a little busier than normal. I've rushed into something. I'll use them then too. Even if it's, held in my hand while I'm making a coffee order because I know myself well enough that I I'm at risk of getting um, surprised because I haven't, I'm not transitioning. So almost sometimes I take them out of my wallet and I hold them. These are fresh ones. Yeah, was, you guys they can't do see look them, very crisp. but I just make, 
I just made them today. I made a new set anyway. Uh, and, and, and just having them in my, in my hands or sometimes, but, but visible, not just in my pocket will remind me that if someone gets my name wrong with the coffee order, because I've just come from, I've just successfully navigated something difficult. I'm still, I'm still a bit in body shock. I'm still carrying the last meeting. And so I'll do that. Rub them together. <laughs> I have been caught once or twice and <laughs> I just smile. I'd rather be looked at for being a mad person for carrying these three cards than other things that used to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad that we, uh, we scheduled and can show up. And I so agree that having conversation partners is uh, such a, a gift and such a thing to pursue you know, knowing even that you can come out of any kind of situation and have someone that you can talk through your feelings with, you know, that is not necessarily a professional, but that we begin to really reclaim the idea of friendship, you know, outside of all the things that have been monetized that may or may not be of use to us, may or may not be accessible to us you know, and that we do have the capacity to build trust. If you look at where I come from in life and where you come from in life, there wouldn't be very much on paper that would um, suggest we were going to become such close friends. But by continuing to risk more and more intimate conversations and what Adrian Marie Brown calls um, co-evolution of friendships, I think, Cole, do I have that right? We are here today. Yeah, co-evolution through friendship. Right. I'm so glad. Yeah, me too. And just to encourage everyone out there that, you know, if there's a person today that you can just even reconnect to simply in a hello, how are you? And maybe it doesn't go past that today. But to remember that those are friendship is available to us. And sometimes it's about starting somewhere new and um, getting to somewhere better. That's it. That's all. That's all. We, what fun. We did. It. I don't feel so sad. <laughs> I do feel better. Not that it was bad to feel sad. Me too. Co-regulated. Just catching myself. No, that's not. <laughs> sad is not bad. It's right here, but we're right here. Thanks so much, Cole. Okay. Thanks, JD. Thank you for listening. If our brains are making sense to your brains, there are a couple of ways you can help us out. Connect us with more people. If there are folks in your life who you think would enjoy spending some time with us, please pass this along to them. And, and I know you hear it on every podcast, but liking, subscribing, reviewing on whatever platform you're listening to makes a huge difference, especially in these early days. And if you'd like, you can support us with a little bit of money on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash madpractice. Big thank yous to Camille Craig for producing and composer Dana Ayotte for our fabulous theme song. If you'd like to learn more about us or our work, head to madpractice.org and chat with us on Twitter and Instagram. But most importantly, take care of yourself and each other. Love you, Cole. Love you, JD. Love you, Cole. Love you, JD. 